So it's Matthew chapter 6, beginning at verse 25. Therefore, I tell you, do not worry about your life, what you will eat or drink, or about your body, what you will wear. Is not life more than food, and the body more than clothes? Look at the birds of the air. They do not sow or reap or store away in barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not much more valuable than they? Can any one of you, by worrying, add a single hour to your life? And why do you worry about clothes? See how the flowers of the field grow. They do not labor or spin. Yet I tell you that not even Solomon in all his splendor was dressed like one of these. If that is how God clothes the grass of the field, which is here today and tomorrow is thrown into the fire, will he not much more clothe you, you of little faith? So do not worry saying, what shall we eat or what shall we drink or what shall we wear? For the pagans run after all these things and your heavenly father knows that you need them. But seek first his kingdom and his righteousness and all these things will be given to you as well. Therefore, do not worry about tomorrow for tomorrow will worry about itself. Each day has enough trouble of its own. Let me pray and then we'll, we'll have a look at God's word. Father, we pray that today we would hear your voice. Please would we hear your voice speaking into our worries. Please would we see more of your character and would you help us to trust you. Amen. Jesus doesn't understand what it's like to be a worrier. That was, in effect, the reaction I got when I told a friend that I was going to be speaking on this passage today. So she's someone who has experienced anxiety on and off and she felt like this passage is less of a comfort and more of a guilt trip. I wonder how you react. Do Jesus' words sound realistic to you? When Jesus says, do not worry, do you think, Jesus, that's just not possible? Or Jesus, you just don't understand. How does it make you feel if you're someone who is prone to worry? Angry, guilty, miserable? Well, we all know worry and anxiety and fear are facts of life. And whoever we are, I imagine that we've all had the experience of being awake in the middle of the night, staring at the ceiling, worrying. The missionary Amy Carmichael called the small hours of the morning the time when all life's life's molehills become mountains. And I think we can all relate to that. Some of us, however, know what it's like to worry routinely on an almost daily basis, and we live with anxiety. It might just be a general sense of unease that lingers in the background like an unwelcome party guest, or it might be a much more specific anxiety related to an issue, um, as Charlotte was describing. It might also be the case that some of us here have found that the last 18 months, the pandemic and then the lockdown, that's given rise to fears and anxieties that we didn't even know that we had. There'll be a few of us who find anxiety so present in our lives that it disrupts everything. It affects our work, our social life, whether we're sleeping or not, how much we're eating. And depending on where we are on the spectrum, whether we're an occasional worrier or we are diagnosed with a more uh, serious anxiety disorder, the kind of help we will seek to some extent will vary. So if anxiety is making an ordinary life difficult for you over a period of more than a few weeks, it is wise to see your GP. 
But wherever we are on the spectrum, we can all find help in God's word and that's what we're going to try to do today. I wonder how many of us, when we've been talking to a friend about our worries, have we described them as irrational? I know I'm just being irrational. Yet in one sense, worry is entirely rational, isn't it? Because we live in a world that's charged with possibilities, good and bad. It might not be the case that our worst fears have happened to us yet, but we're pretty sure they've happened to someone else out there. We're able to imagine both better futures and worse ones. So our worries might vary in their content from person to person, but the essence of worry is essentially the same. Worry wants to avoid the bad and hold on to the good. I want us to take a moment to write down two or three things that worry us. You don't have to tell anyone or show anyone. This is just for you. Take a moment, two or three things that worry you and try to be as specific as possible. You can write them down on your piece of paper or lodge them in your brain or write them on, in a note on your phone and I'll give you a few seconds to do that. Okay, we'll come back to those later. I've got confession here. This is one of my worries. When I was a teenager, um, this, is, this is on the more ridiculous end of the spectrum, so feel free to laugh. Um, I remember being extremely worried um, for a period of probably a couple of years about the end of the world. And I was especially worried that the world would end by asteroid strike. And I, I would literally lie awake at night thinking about the lumps of rock circling the earth, you know, ready to come and strike us dead like dinosaurs. I was so embarrassed about this fear. Um, I didn't even tell my parents or friends. I thought they wouldn't take me seriously. My fear thrived in secret. It was as if everyone else living on planet Earth was living in ignorance, ignorance of the peril that we were in. But me, I was the only one of six billion people who really knew the truth. I think even the really irrational fears that we, that we have, that we're embarrassed to tell anyone about, we need to remember that someone somewhere else has had those fears before. In fact, not long after I started worrying about asteroids, the film Armageddon came out, which shows you how old I am. That's where Bruce Willis and Ben Affleck saved the world by blowing up an asteroid. Um, so clearly someone else had had that fear before me, or that had that thought. They thought, what a terrifying idea, let's make it into a film. Um, I'll let you decide whether it was a good one. I don't know what you've written down on your paper, but I do know that no one in this room has a new worry, whether it's terrorism or failing an exam or loneliness or germs or public speaking or something else. Someone before you has already worried about it. And I want us to begin by listening to our worries, to think about what our worries tell us is important to us. What good things are we worrying about losing? What bad things do we fear will happen? What legitimate concern or felt need is behind the worry? Now, sometimes we can be a bit afraid to speak our fears out loud because in case we somehow speak them into existence, as if talking about them will make them more likely to happen. But I think one reason it's good to name them, name our worries, is they do tell us what we think is important in life. They tell us where we place value or in the words of Jesus, what we treasure. You see, to really understand Jesus' words on worry that we've just read, we need to hear the point that he makes beforehand. So in verses 
19 to 24, just before the passage I read. There, Jesus makes a really shrewd observation about the connection between what we value and what we worry about. So this section is all part of a much longer sermon, the Sermon on the Mount. And Jesus is exploring the idea of what it means to belong to his kingdom. The theme is that disciples of Jesus are citizens of a new community whose lives will be characterized by a wholehearted devotion to God. You become a citizen of God's kingdom um, as a gift. You can't earn it. You only receive it. And having received that gift, it's natural that those who belong to the kingdom will want to live their whole lives for God. So in chapter 6, verse 19, Jesus asks this question. What are you living for? What do you think about on repeat? What do you put most of your energy into? Or in his language, are you storing up treasure on earth or treasure in heaven? Perhaps those are familiar images to us. Earthly treasure is great whilst it lasts, but one day it will wear out, break down or get nicked. But heavenly treasure isn't fragile. It's like a diamond passed down from your great-grandmother that doesn't lose its beauty or value. It's like a vintage wine. It gets better with age. Heavenly treasure is treasure we store up now to enjoy at a later date. So I think it's interesting that before he addresses our worries, Jesus asks us this question, where is your treasure? Now, to be clear, I don't think that Jesus is saying that we shouldn't care at all about earthly things and only care about spiritual things. Because if you don't care about producing anything at work and you're often late and you get sacked, well, that would just be foolish and it wouldn't honour God. Same with your kid's education. You'd be an unloving, unwise parent if you didn't take an interest in it. We should care. But Jesus' focus is what do you treasure? It's about what do you prize above all else? The issue is not that earthly treasure isn't good or desirable. The issue is that we value it too much. We're like children who, when we're offered the choice between a gold sticker, um, like a paper gold sticker that you can wear on your school jumper, to a real gold medal, we choose the sticker. Jesus is pointing out that sometimes excessive worry can be a symptom of mistaken treasure. Honestly, how many of your worries, if you trace them back to their roots, are related to a search for earthly treasure? Of course, it's not always clear cut, is it? There'll be some here who are struggling with an anxiety that's related to something terribly wrong that's been done to you. Others of us who are deeply worried for a dearly loved family member who's gravely ill. But it is a question worth, worth asking because it is possible that we contribute to our own worries by storing up our treasure in all the wrong places and we worry about that treasure. You might feel it's a bit brutal coming from Jesus, but if you think about it, it does provide us with a way out. Anxiety often leaves us feeling powerless and trapped. But if the root cause is mistaken treasure, then with God's help, we can do something about it. We're no longer trapped. There is a way out. Do you know what the most frequent command in scripture is? It's do not be afraid. God knows that we're often far too anxious about earthly treasure, whether it's literally our bank balance or something that's valuable in a different way, like the approval of other people. 
God knows that. And yet his response is, do not be afraid. His first response is not to judge our worries against someone else's. It's not to tell us to snap out of it. His first words are, do not be afraid. 300 times in the Bible. Doesn't that tell us something? Our Heavenly Father knows that we need to hear it and we need to hear it often. He doesn't mind saying it again and again. He's like the parent whose child runs to them in the middle of the night, afraid of monsters under the bed. The parent knows that there's nothing to be afraid of, but takes that extra step of looking under the bed and into the cupboard to reassure them. And then says to their child, don't be afraid. This passage in Matthew 6, it's not meant to be a stick with which we beat ourselves up with when we're anxious, as my friend thought it might be. One thing I hope we'll see today is how Jesus is full of tender reassurance for us when we're anxious. And the message I really want us to go away with ringing in our ears is our Heavenly Father loves us and he'll give us what we need. So do not be afraid. Well, let's jump into the passage that we read earlier. Jesus says in verse 25, Therefore I tell you, do not worry about your life, what you will eat or drink, or about your body, what you will wear. Is not life more than food, and the body more than clothes? Look at the birds of the air. They do not sow or reap or store away in barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not much more valuable than they? Can any one of you, by worrying, add a single hour to your life? I think what Jesus says here is really interesting and wise. Um, of course, he's wise, he's, he's Jesus. But it's in the nature of anxiety to always be focused on the future, isn't it? We, we get kind of trapped in a repeat loop of what ifs. What if this happens? What if something worse happens? What if, what if, what if? But Jesus wants to draw our attention to the present. Look at the birds, he says. See how the flowers of the field grow. Look around you at what God is doing today, minute by minute, providing everything his creatures need. The birds, they don't worry about where their next meal is coming from or how to pay for new clothes. They don't have a 10-year plan. They don't pay into a pension. The birds live each day as it comes, resting in the knowledge that their creator will provide. And it's a brilliant image, isn't it? Because it's so universal. Birds are everywhere. Even in London. How often do you see a pigeon in London? There are tens of thousands of them, almost to the extent at which we feel we're being invaded by pigeons. And I don't actually know many Londoners who are fond of pigeons. We try to make life difficult for them, don't we? We pigeon-proof our buildings by putting those spikes on the windowsills so they can't perch there or draping big nets up so they can't nest. In fact, I once went to Canary Wharf, I don't know if you've seen this, um, and met a man who told me it was his job to just walk around with a bird of prey um, to scare off the pigeons. And this sort of eagle-like, someone's nodding, <laughs> they've seen it too. They, they basically rent an eagle to, to scare away the pigeons, to keep Canary Wharf free of pigeons. So we Londoners, we don't really like pigeons. But think about this, God cares for the pigeons. We think they're vermin, but God cares for the pigeons. He feeds them. He gives them places to nest. And this is Jesus's point. You are so much more valuable to God than a pigeon. If he gives pigeons what they need, why do you doubt that he will give you, a child of God, what you need? 
God isn't stingy in his provision either. And that's the point, I think, in the second image in verse 28. He goes on, and why do you worry about clothes? See how the flowers of the field grow. They do not labor or spin. Yet I tell you that not even Solomon in all his splendor was dressed like one of these. If that is how God clothes the grass of the field, which is here today and tomorrow is thrown into the fire, will he not much more clothe you, you of little faith? You see, God provides not just what's necessary for the flower to live, sunlight and water and soil, God provides them with beauty. He clothes them with beauty too. In my front room, there are 15 houseplants because I was one of those people who became a plant parent in lockdown. And I think my pot plants are beautiful. Each one has its own kind of character, its own clothing. Some of them have stripy leaves that are green and purple and silver. Others have tendrils that drape down a bookshelf. Others have very distinctive leaves. Leaves? Leaf, leaves, that when you, you know, the sunlight comes through and it just makes a nice pretty pattern on the wall. My pot plants, as humble as they are, are effortlessly beautiful. Think in contrast though about the efforts we human beings go to be beautiful. My house plants don't need to brush their hair in the morning and they don't waste their time browsing the sales online and trying on 20 items before sending most of it back. It's always been the same, hasn't it? Human beings have gone to great lengths about their appearance. And I think that's why Jesus brings up Solomon here. The Bible tells us that King Solomon was richer than all the other kings of the earth. So he must have worn some expensive clothes. We're not told exactly what he wore, but the Bible does tell us that when he was redecorating his palace, he made all his goblets from gold because nothing was made of silver in Solomon's days, because silver was considered of little value. So you can imagine how much bling there would have been in Solomon's wardrobe. But I think Jesus' point is, the humble plant, which is here today and tomorrow goes in the bin because I've forgotten to water it, it has a kind of effortless beauty that surpasses that of Solomon. It surpasses that of the best-dressed celebrity on the red carpet. Doesn't the intrinsic beauty of nature tell us something about the generosity and the goodness of God? That he's filled the world with things that are not only useful, but attractive and colourful and flavourful. And if he dresses nature with such an eye for beauty, how much more confident can we be, his children, that he will give us what we need and do so with abundance? I think so often when we're worrying It's because we've forgotten this truth that God cares for us. And it's a familiar truth, isn't it? It's one that it's not intellectually hard to understand. We all know God loves us. But I find for me, the problem is one of consistency. It's not that I don't believe God loves me. Deep down, I know it's true, but it's a daily remembering that he loves me. Everyday life is gritty. There's the push and pull of hope and fear. And the truth of God's love just often fades into the the background. So we don't just need to believe the truth. We need to rehearse it, repeat it like an actor who learns their lines. A friend of mine who, who often struggles with anxiety, she told me one method that she has of rehearsing the truth. And it's actually based on this passage She has two birds to remind her that God cares for her more than the birds. One bird is a fridge magnet that sits on the fridge at home. The other bird is embroidered onto a pencil case. 
So wherever she goes, whether she's at home, whether she's out of the house, she has a little bird with her, a little symbol of God's love. If you're someone who often gets overwhelmed by worry, then maybe you would find it helpful to find a a method to do the same, something that works for you. My friend, she's got these physical objects that she can see them and touch them and they they are prompt to her um, to think of the truth. Others of us might find writing a Bible verse on your hand before you go to sleep so it's the first thing you see in the morning. That could be helpful. It might be just learning the words to a psalm or a song, something that you can dwell on in the middle of the night when you're prone to worry. Whatever it is, we all need ways to rehearse the truth. But I wonder whether a few of us here today feel like our anxiety is just a solid brick wall that is impossible to break down. We've tried No strategy seems to work. We're on the brink of giving up hope that we could ever change. Well, if that's you, I wonder if this is helpful. Helen Thorne, in her book that Minnie recommended earlier, she talks about um, how anxiety can be like a brick wall. And it's as if every brick represents a different factor that contributes to anxiety. And she says, if you try pushing down the whole wall, that's impossible. That's not going to work. You'll just give up and despair. But you can remove one brick at a time. And if you think about those bricks representing different factors, well, one brick might be a lie that we believe about God, such as he doesn't care for me. Another brick might be an unhealthy coping mechanism, something like overeating or avoiding a social event. Another brick or several bricks might be factors that are simply out of our control past experiences or just our energy levels on a given day. So it's impossible to deal with the whole, the whole brick wall, but we can um, slowly, bit by bit, take down bricks until we see light through the wall. The reality is, if we're struggling with anxiety, we're not going to overcome it overnight, but we are all on a journey to becoming step by step more like the person Jesus has made us to be, someone who's a little bit less ruled by worry, and a bit more ruled by love, or his love. Finally, verses 31 to 34, seek first God's kingdom and he will give you what you need. Jesus says, do not worry, saying, what shall we eat or what shall we drink or what shall we wear? For the pagans run after all these things and your heavenly father knows that you need them. But seek first his kingdom and his righteousness and all these things will be given to you as well. Therefore, do not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will worry about itself. Each day has enough trouble of its own. When I was 24 years old, I left London to live in China for two years. And as I, as I left, it was a time in my life when I was especially um, aware that I was needy. Because when I arrived in the country, I needed help with everything. I needed to learn the language. I couldn't even buy something in the shops by myself. I needed everything for daily life a Chinese SIM card, I needed a bike to get around on, I needed a working internet connection, I needed to learn how to cook things without an oven, because they don't really do ovens in China, I needed to learn how to eat with chopsticks, and I needed friends. And I remember just as I was leaving, I was at Heathrow Airport, waiting at the gate for my flight, I remember checking my phone, and someone had texted me verse 33 from our passage, seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be given to you as well. And it was such a well-chosen verse for that moment because as I was leaving home and leaving everything behind that was familiar, 
I did have a choice to make. It was a choice between, between being focused on my needs and how to fulfill them or seeking God first and his kingdom and then trusting him to provide everything else. As it happened, I'd just met for the first time that morning at the airport another British girl and I'd arranged to travel to China with her. We were total strangers. I think we'd only spoken on the phone or on Skype once before. She was a Christian. She'd lived in China for one year already and she would become my colleague, my mentor, later my flatmate, my best friend in China for two years. Um, and still today, we're still friends. Um, and as I sat at the gate pondering how God would meet my needs, how he would provide for me as I plunged into the unknown, um, I didn't really realize that at the time that God had already provided in the form of my friend, Nia. He'd provided someone who could help me. Um, in many ways, he was the person that he used to meet my needs in those early weeks and months in, in China because she could show me around and show me how things worked. And in some ways, she was a little picture to me of Jesus. She'd gone before me and experienced the ups and downs of life in China. And she was there to walk with me as I experienced it too. But interestingly, the one thing I didn't do in that moment was pray. Earlier in the same sermon in Matthew 6, Jesus has just taught his disciples how to respond when they are conscious of their need. He says to them, pray. He says, give us this day, our daily bread is what you're to pray. I think here what Jesus says about how we're to pray is significant. He says words to the effect of, uh, don't pray like an unbeliever who thinks using lots of long words will twist God's arm to answer him. Don't be like them, for your father knows what you need before you ask him. It's the same idea in verse 32 of our passage where Jesus says, for the pagans run after all these things and your heavenly father knows that you need them. The question is, when anxiety comes knocking on our door, as, as it will, how do we respond? Do we pray to a heavenly father in the quiet trust that not only does he know what we need, but he's already providing it? Or do we act more like the unbeliever who doesn't know the goodness of God, who doesn't know God as a father and a provider? I think this is why Christians in the past, when describing God's sovereign control over all things, they preferred to use the word providence to the word sovereignty. So providence means God's good, purposeful, wise, holy, and fatherly provision as he governs the world. Providence providence. God provides. It means that everything that God has planned for your life and mine, he has a purpose for. Every trouble he permits for his children, he will also provide for. The promise is not that God will give us what we need for the Christian life. It's not a promise. So the promise is that God will give us what we need for the Christian life. It's not a promise that he will give us all we want and desire. It's not a promise that the worst will never happen. But it is a promise that he'll be with us if he does if it does, as a loving father who provides. But what exactly does it look like to seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and especially to do that when we're feeling anxious? Well, I wonder if it's as simple as asking ourselves this question each day. What one thing can I do to love God and others? If you think about it, anxiety tends to focus us inwards on 
what might happen to us and how I'm feeling right now. But that question, what can I do to love God and love others today? It encourages us to look up and look out and not in. It might be as as simple as a prayer to God, asking him to redirect our thoughts or asking him for help to finish this piece of work that we've been given to do or to have the conversation that he's given us in that moment. But as we seek him, he will give us what we need. I wonder, does it surprise you to know that the Apostle Paul, who is probably um, the example without rival for someone seeking first the kingdom of God, he also experienced anxiety. I think it's surprising to us, isn't it, because of that very famous verse in Philippians 4, verse 6, the one that gets printed on Christian merchandise. Do not be anxious about anything, but present your request to God, and the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Now, those doubts don't sound like the words of a man who experienced anxiety. Yet in the very same letter that he writes those words, the letter to the Philippians, in chapter 2, he admits it. He explains that he's going to send this guy, Epaphroditus, back to the Philippians so that he, Paul, might experience less anxiety. You see, Epaphroditus had been ill when he was visiting Paul and he nearly died. And Paul is desperate to send him home to the church so that they will no longer be separated from their brother and so that Paul can worry less about the health of Epaphroditus. I think the promise here in Matthew 6 is not that we'll never have any worries as we seek to serve God. Because there's a very biblical sense in which we will have anxiety because love leads, leads to anxiety. As any parent of a small child or a child of an elderly parent knows, we worry about the people we love. But it is a promise that as we seek God and his kingdom first, we can rely on him for everything we need. It's a conditional promise, not in the sense that we have to do something for God and in return he gives us stuff. But it's conditional in the sense that the more generous we are towards God, the more he will give us open eyes to see his generosity towards us, to see how he has already provided, as perhaps I should have done as I sat at the airport that day. I just want to finish with this verse, also from Philippians. Uh, Paul is writing um, to the church, giving thanks for their financial giving. They've been seeking first the kingdom by giving away their money sacrificially. And he gives them this promise. My God will meet all your needs according to the riches of his glory in Christ Jesus. That's Philippians 4, verse 19. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we want to thank you for being our Father who provides for our needs. We thank you that you care for us more than we dare to believe, more than we can imagine. And we pray that in an anxious world, we might be people who are different because we trust in you, because we know your loving care and your provision for us always. We pray that today you'd open our eyes to see your hidden hand, feeding us, clothing us, providing for your world and for us. Would you give us grace to seek you first in our lives and to trust you with all our needs? Amen.